2: To create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: I'm Caleb Zachron, the assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Susan Rockwell Johnson and Marjorie B. Thompson of the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. Susan is the president of ADST and a career member of the Senior Foreign Service with over three decades of distinguished service in and out of the State Department. Marjorie directs ADST's book-related programs, advises diplomats and others on editing and publishing matters. ADST has the world's largest collection of US diplomatic and oral history. Susan and Marjorie, it's great to speak with you today.
4: The same, delighted to be here.
3: The first question that I'd like to ask as sort of standard with all New Books Network interviews Is if the two of you could just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got involved with ADST. So Susan, uh, why don't you go first?
4: Sure. Well, um, I grew up in the Foreign Service. Uh, My father was a career Foreign Service officer, and my mother had intended to be, but upon marriage to my father, um, was no longer eligible right after World War II. They were both World War II vets. I was born shortly thereafter and spent most of the first 18 years of my life overseas um, as a foreign service kid. Uh, After coming back to the United States to go to college uh, and then the grad school at Johns Hopkins School of International Studies, I worked in the private sector for a few years in order to learn more about my own country. And so I spent a couple of years out in the Midwest working for uh, Valmont Industries and then on the East Coast in strategic planning and international marketing. But then I wanted to join the Foreign Service and try that. So I joined the Foreign Service and was with it for the next 35 years, serving mostly overseas with just a few Washington assignments. I retired in 2015 and in 2016 started this job as president of ADST.
3: Uh, Marjorie, what's your background and what made you come work for ADST? Yes,
1: well, I was recruited to ADST by the then president, Stephen Lowe. Uh, I had been working for 14 years at the Georgetown University Institute for the Study of Diplomacy, where I also uh, edited and arranged publication of books and other matters on diplomacy, among other things. But in 19... 95 Steve Lowe recruited me along with Bob Miller of DA- president of dacor to come to ADST and create a book series for diplomats because they were being bothered by diplomats with manuscripts and they wanted me to come and take it on so I created the diplomats and diplomacy book series and uh, so I've been I guess I'm the publishing director and the series editor and I've been doing editing and publishing books on diplomacy since 1980. So I'm, I'm old. I'm among the old old.
4: (laughs) One thing uh, I didn't say, and I guess it was implicit in your question, Caleb was, you know, how did I come across ADST? Well, actually, um, I learned about ADST when I was the elected president of the American Foreign Service Association, which is the professional association and union of foreign service officers. And in that capacity, I was an ex officio member of the ADST board. And I had not heard of it. I did not really know about it. Um, So I was, you know, interested and I was then exposed to its work. But I didn't really intend to to go back to work immediately after uh, retiring from the Foreign Service, but uh, I was recruited to come back and I couldn't resist it because ADST was about to go through kind of a major transition and those kinds of things, opportunities attracted me.
3: In your opinion, what is the main mission of the organization?
4: Well, our, our mission is sort of twofold if you want. It's to strengthen public appreciation for an understanding of diplomacy and its importance, and also to strengthen the professional knowledge of diplomatic practitioners by drawing on, identifying and drawing on the lessons um, of the past. Um, The way we do that is through oral histories um, and through our publication uh, program, Uh, So, by encouraging the diplomatic practitioners, career and non-career, to write about diplomacy and get published, and that's where Marjorie uh, proves to be invaluable in helping that process. So, we think that we have both encouraged more people to write and to get published and help them do it, and we're now at over 100 books, Uh, so... I think that makes a difference, and they're complementary programs. One is oral history, and the other is uh, books about diplomacy and diplomats or, or memoirs.
3: And are the people doing the oral histories are typically the same people also writing the books? Is there a crossover, or these kind of separate fields?
4: There is a crossover. They're not all exactly the same. Some people do books have not done their oral histories. Many people do their oral histories and do not do books. Um, we have another program, uh, which is much in a way newer and, and more modest, which is to um, produce bound books of the oral history. Now that is different. That is not a book. That's just taking the oral history and putting it in a book format for, uh, to make a good gift item for family and friends. Um, and also to make it just more retrievable than a file of hundreds of pages uh, in a binder somewhere.
3: Have you yourself participated in the oral histories?
4: Um, I have well, I have li- participated. I have listened and audited to quite a few because they're really fascinating and it can become addictive. I have not done my own. Um, I set myself another goal, which was to get ADST on kind of firm financial footing, and uh, as my first uh, order of business and once I did that I could then uh, do my oral history, and, and after that hopefully become an interviewer and interview others because that's also a, a, a great job.
3: So what is your favorite part of your role as President. Obviously being a president of any organization there's many many multi multifaceted aspects of it but what really sticks out as the the part that you enjoy the most
4: well i think the part that i enjoy the most and that attracted me was first of all adst was facing kind of the dangers of transition of the founding members you know retiring and and sort of moving off the scene Uh, generational change and a change in centuries, kind of the end of the 20th century and a way of doing things in the 21st century. And it left the organization in kind of a vulnerable situation and a question about what next and how to do it. And those kinds of challenges are attractive to me. But so I think envisaging, um, leading and managing that kind of transition in a creative but also humane way that uh, somehow distills and values and takes maximum advantage of the incredible contribution of people who developed this organization over the first three decades and built this enormous uh, uh, treasure trove of oral history. But the methodology and the way that was all done was no longer gonna be viable. So those things, that challenge, that sort of creative challenge of trying to manage that transition and influence and form it. So I think those are the things that really um, are the most fun. The other is kind of building the team. So that's uh, re-envisaging and building a diverse and engaged uh, working board of directors and also building the staff um, and and looking for diversity and bringing in more people and thinking about um, how do we meld Uh, The volunteer works, we have a lot of volunteers with the paid staff, with uh, people, foreign service officers who are loaned to us for brief periods of time. So how to meld that all into a team and take maximum advantage and and how best to use our internship program, which is uh, really a, a large and we think very creative program and is fully integrated into our business operations. And it makes for, I think, a great internship and students value it.
3: Can you talk a little bit more about that internship and what it looks like?
4: Well, that's where you see you'll have to do a follow up interview with Lisa, who's one of the co-managers of it. Um, the internship basically is designed to do a couple of things. It, it attracts students from you know all over the country, and especially so that we've now become virtual. But pre-pandemic, it was in person. Um, and we had a th- we have three sessions a year, um, kind of spring, summer, fall, winter, you know, three, three cohorts. Um, prior to the pandemic, it was about maybe 15 interns a year, five of them per, let's say, quarter. Um, during the pandemic, we got up to 30 or 35 interns at a time. And now we're kind of looking for something in between that um, number. Um, so the interns, first of all, uh, learn about the oral history process. So they're exposed to all parts of it from the deciding who to interview, um, recruiting that those people, uh, scheduling issues, then helping do the actual recording, then working on the transcripts. And now we have um, voice recognition transcripts, I mean, uh, programs. And so we have experimented with various. Then there's the table of contents that we have have to be done from each oral history to make it more searchable and so forth. And then uh, there's the editing of it or the getting the narrator to edit. And sometimes that involves editing the transcript first just for clarity, um, not substance, to make it easier, an easier lift for the narrator. And I say easier because these oral histories are often hundreds of pages long, and so it's quite a bit of work. That's part of it. We also um, have them have special projects of their own. It can be a research project article writing. And we have a feature. One of the big changes, I think, between the first 30 years and now our second 30 years is that we've moved from not just producing oral histories, which is the collection and the managing and keeping and archiving, but to the sharing of them. And so now we're doing both of those things and the interns are very involved in the sharing and our social media platform and in developing content for that based on the oral histories. So we call those moments in US diplomatic history and interns uh, write those moments, we'll research them and write them, some assigned, some their own choice. And then those are reviewed and edited by Lisa and her colleague, Mark Rincon, another foreign service officer. So that's the the gist of it. We use um, one in we we tend to get a certain number of what we call veteran interns. These are people who get so interested in it they want to stay on, and they do for like on their own, and they help us onboard and mentor the next in group coming in, which became important once we got to large numbers. Now we use the interns also for podcasts um, and. Well, for a while, we were doing some video, short videos. uh, And they worked on that, too. So there's a whole host of things uh, that the interns work on. um, Analytics reports on our web web page, a variety of things in that area. And the last thing I should have mentioned is that we try to make sure that they can learn as much as they're interested in learning about the Foreign Service, the State Department, what career opportunities there are, what co- what the work really involves, and what kind of preparation, um, you know, helps them develop that career path if that's what they're interested in.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
3: So as you were sort of saying, a lot of the work is a archival process and these documents can be hundreds of pages. What do some of these oral histories look like? What is it, What is a kind of a standard oral history? I'm sure that they differ, you know, greatly depending on the person.
4: <laughs> well, you're right there. Um, I guess I would say that the average A number of interview sessions for an oral history is around, let's say, five to eight. And each is usually a 90 minute to two hour session. And but the shortest ones could be two or three sessions and the longest ones are 50, 60, even 70 sessions. So it depends a lot on the diplomat, on the person, their career, what they were involved with, how much they wanna talk about it. Um, So there are a lot of different factors. People are different. (laughs) So yes, they really vary a a lot that way. Um, Trying to think what else I could say about, Uh, the oral histories. I mean, they are a treasure trove. People find all kinds of things in them. The users, you know, academics, scholars, researchers, documentarians, grad students, uh, uh, the, the feedback we get from them increasingly is that our oral histories are a really valuable resource for them in supplementing whatever official record is available, but also for the authenticity of the voice and the kind of personal anecdotes and observations and recollections that exist nowhere else. And there are a lot of backstories that get told in these oral histories, which are nowhere in the official record about how something actually came about.
3: Yeah, I I can see the the value, especially for academics to just be incredible, especially because, you know, with any kind of diplomatic history, sometimes the information available to (laughs) scholars is very few and far between. so you know you've already talked a little bit about it you know in relation to the internship program but you know I'm 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 assuming that someone interesting to in, listening to this uh, might be interested in foreign service or in diplomatic work so i so wondering what advice you might give to a student or a person who thinks that you know maybe a career in the foreign service or a career in diplomatic issues is interesting to them.
4: Well, I I mean I'd certainly encourage. Uh, People with that interest in applying for an internship with us because there's few better ways to really not only meet um, Foreign Service officers, retired ones, some very eminent ones and well-known ones, and some um, younger active duty ones today. And, and the experience can be quite a bit different, <laughs> what it what it was, you know, 50 years ago and what it is today. But what the actual work involves, what are the range of different, you know, types of work and opportunities? The other thing that I would suggest if you can't get an internship is um, really uh, researching or reading or exploring the oral histories themselves. And they're quite searchable if there's a part of the world or an issue or a time period that you're particularly interested in. I mean, I should say that our collection covers what we call modern American diplomacy, which means World War II to today. So we're talking usually 70, 80 decades. Uh, I mean, yeah, 70 or 80 years or seven or eight decades. Um, but if, if you're interested in anything there, um, definitely take a look because it's going to give you a real feel for what the actual work is. What are the situations that people get involved in? And our oral histories cover an entire career. Um, so you'll see what it is people do at the beginning of their career, the middle of their career, later on. It can give you, I think, something pretty unique Uh, and very, a very valuable supplement to whatever written material or oral presentations you might get from State Department recruiters. Um, You're going to get the the kind of the unvarnished real (laughs) personal version here through the oral history.
3: So, you know, in, in your work, uh, when I asked you about what your favorite part of the role is, I feel you sort of uh, said, said your favorite part is addressing the challenges. So I always like to ask, you know, what is the greatest challenge you face as president? Uh, you know, you made a, it, it might be the same as your, as the part that you enjoy the most though, it's okay. <laughs>
4: well, I think the challenge that I mentioned that, that what attracted me in the beginning is um, I really believe in the value of the mission and in the great and sort of unique value of the collection so far. Um, you know, roughly we figure it cost us probably $15 million to build this collection over 30 years. So at about 500,000 a year, and that's probably understated because a lot of it was volunteer labor, which we could only value at a, a, a pretty low rate, um, and it's irreplaceable. Many of those people have passed on and, uh, they are, you know, if we didn't have these oral histories that would be kind of lost to the historians, et cetera. Um, But I think the the challenge of trying to move from the 20th to the 21st century, uh, trying to become more professional, to integrate new technologies um, that are available today, to increase our output and um, even raise our standards, which which were good, but I think we can be even more uniform now, um, and to focus on Sharing and outreach, something we didn't do. So, in the past, I think before we developed a social media platform and programs, the only people that discovered us really were scholars, researchers, academics, and they would often find us via the Library of Congress. Um, now, uh, thousands of people find us, you know, just online, um, I guess hundreds of thousands. Um, and we have a lot more feedback via Google Scholar and others about how many people are using us and how they're using us and citing us in articles and PhD theses and books and all kinds of things. And we've collected quite a bit of feedback where we can um, from people to tell us how you how they used our resources and, and how did it improve or help whatever it was they We're doing. So, we certainly hear from a lot of grad students and PhD candidates um, who use it a lot. So, you know, for me, just to build the organization in the right way and to figure out what that right way is, uh, we want to be bigger and we are much bigger now. Um, I think when I came, we had about six people part time for, or three, what we call FTE or full time employees. And now, we have um, double that, plus a much expanded intern program, a much bigger volunteer bench. So, altogether, probably about 50 people working for us, and I'm always trying to add to that. For example, we just started, I think at one point you, you maybe indicated you might want to ask about, you know, what plans for the future, what kinds of things we're doing, um, projects. I mean, a lot of our budget now comes from projects, project work. We go out and find people who want to do oral histories of this this or that agency or on this or that issue. And uh, we compete for projects or submit proposals. So that's grown a lot. Uh, but But another thing that we're looking at is how do we take some of the things we did in the past and make them usable and relevant today. I'll give you an example. Um, 10 years ago or so, maybe even 15 years ago, ADST developed something called country, uh, country readers. Well, a country reader was, for a given country, let's take Russia since it's in the news, we would collect all the excerpts from all the oral histories we had that dealt with Russia, and we pull them all together in one Russia country reader. And we did that for all countries, 196 countries and international organizations. But most of them are anywhere from you know, 300 to 3000 pages long. And we found that most people couldn't really cope with that. It was too much. So we're looking for, okay, what could we do? And we have a project underway to take one of them in this case for Greece and uh, really curate it and edit it and add some things like a timeline and uh, a bibliography and photographs and make it into a really uh, useful reference book on, in, in our case, 80 years of US Greek relations where you can see what were the policy issues that continued during all that time Um, Who were the characters, both in Greece and in the United States? What were the kind of, you know, points of contention, and how were they resolved? And so I think there is something, a, a way that we can take all those materials and kind of reinvent it using new technology. And now that things are more searchable, and we can have it online and available to people. And the curated version is probably... Uh, only a fifth as long. We really just pull out the most important things and organize it in a way that makes it uh, more searchable and I think a more relevant reference book to anyone interested in U.S.-Greek relations or anyone going to work or represent our country in Greece. And invariably, these things are of great interest to the Greeks or to the diplomats and other researchers and academics in those countries as well.
3: That sounds like a, an incredible project. Like I, I can see the value. I don't even need to almost ask why would that be valuable? because it's very, I think very obviously a useful resource and definitely something that, you know, up until you know hearing you explain it and looking at your website and going through going through a little bit of, of what ADST has to offer, I didn't really know that it existed. I assumed it existed on some level, but not widely available. Uh, you know, something I wanted to ask. I know you you are very you know busy with your work at ADST, but are you working on any book projects, articles, other sorts of uh, ways, even related to ADST, but uh, you know, other things?
4: We are always working on projects. We have a you know project pipeline, and we have projects that are kind of about to be underway. Certainly in the in the book area, and we can see if Marjorie wants to you know add or correct, but. Um, You know, we've got several books that are under contract and will be forthcoming this year or early next year. Um, One by Ambassador Quainton, Eye on the World, A Life in International Service. Another one by Rufus Phillips, Stabilizing Fragile States, Why It Matters, What to Do About It. One by Ambassador Edward Marks, Professional Foreigner. And then we've got six or seven more that are kind of in progress. I don't need to maybe go through all the specifics that is available, I think, somewhere on our website. Um, So we have a lot of a lot of those books and new ones are always coming along. (laughs) Marjorie thinks she might retire, but it's never possible because more people um, approach us and would like help uh, in in getting their book completed and published. We're working on a project uh, to get funding for an Afghanistan oral history project to capture oral histories of the evacuation from Kabul by people who are actually there in the lead up to it, during it, and right after from all agencies, including our local Afghan employees, um, and to add that to to enrich our our collection on U.S.-Afghanistan relations. Um, There's a lot of interest in that, Uh, because it's so current and the difference is we would be interviewing um, active duty people who are still you know working mostly where most of our oral histories are from retired people but we've done projects in the past with the United States Institute for Peace which are called like lessons learned with active duty uh, folk Uh, so that's always a challenge because they have to clear it and one thing or another um, but that's I'm trying to think if there are other projects we have underway. There's one we call Foreign Insight. We thought it would be good on some select issues to not just have the US diplomatic perspective on that issue, but to get oral histories from some key foreigners involved on the other side of the table on that issue and see to what extent their perspective and how that meshes with our own, with the US view so that's called our foreign insight pilot project and we're doing it on the dissolution of Yugoslavia and seeing how we have a lot from our own oral history archive on what people thought was happening and now we're collecting what the Yugoslavs of various types how they saw it and how they saw our role so that's a new pilot project.
3: Well that sounds like you are you really have your hands full and you're working on so many different projects. Uh, I wanted to thank you both so much for being on the New Books Network. Um, you're doing, you know, extremely interesting work. Uh, and is there any way, you know, I'm sure anyone could Google your uh, ADST, but it, is there any way that you would recommend if someone is interested in the work you're doing and might want to get involved or participate, anything that you would direct them to?
4: Well, they're certainly welcome to contact you know me, or they can always write um, info at ADST, and it gets directed to the appropriate you know part of the office. I didn't say that we're we're trying to work on a big modernization um, project uh, and hoping to get congressional support so that we can modernize a lot what we're doing and um, expand our staffing and one thing or another. Um, and do a better job with sharing. We think there's a lot of untapped opportunities for sharing the information that we have and upgrading our website, for example. I mean, we have a lot of things that we wanna do that require capital expenditure. And so we're looking for that among other things. But definitely, I mean, we we do get a lot of inquiries. We welcome them. Um, Lots of people uh, come to us to get in contact with the narrator of an oral history. Um, because they'd like a follow-up interview. And so we, we put, put them in touch uh, if the person is still living. And we're supplying now a lot of audio tapes to documentarians who are interested in getting the audio. And that's a whole other process. So yes, we have our hands full and more things to do there than we have hands or ears or whatever to do them. But we certainly welcome this opportunity to talk to you about it and to learn about the New Books Network. And uh, I, I, maybe there would be some future opportunities to talk more with Marjorie because the book, the books that we have put out uh, is really another, I mean, I'm very impressed with them and we've had award winners um, and there are a lot of them great books um, and certainly contributing a lot to knowledge about diplomacy.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Susan and Marjorie, thank you so much for being on the New Books Network. It was great talking and hope to do so in the future.
4: Okay, very good to meet you and thanks, Caleb. Yes, thank you very much.